Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11. Now when they, draw, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered into it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it, and if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went on their way and found the colt tied by the door outside of the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, What what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they left them go so they let them go on. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, this is an important story recorded in all four Gospels. There's a, a depth here, God, that we want to wade into. And so lead us into that space. God, there's things for us to learn, but I believe there's also your voice for us to hear, and we want to hear it. And so speak in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked, if you had a genie, what would your three wishes be? And she replied without missing a beat. And she said, a new dress, new shoes, and some new pants. It was a conversation I had with my four-year-old this week while driving to school one morning. She's been talking a lot about what she wants because her birthday's tomorrow. It's on Valentine's Day. And so as she was talking about all that she wants, I just thought, oh, I'll word this a bit different, trying to whittle it down because she wants a lot of things. But if you only had three options, what would they be? Now, it's funny because for us who maybe have lived a little bit more life, we would probably tell Declan she should set her sights a little higher than just a dress, a pair of shoes, and a new pair of pants if she actually had three wishes from a genie that came out of a bottle. We know that we would wish for bigger or better things than just a single new pair of shoes. But I bet if I went back and asked her that same question year after year that her list would change and shift and morph as she grew a little bit older. As she gets older, she'll start wishing for things like a driver's license, and then maybe a car of her own. It's gonna be her feeling the stress and pressure of school and praying that she'd pass her AP class. Then it's gonna be for her father to allow her to go on a first date, which will not happen. (laughs) But then she's gonna pray for things like to get into that college, and then she'll get in and she'll pray for that scholarship. She'll pray for a dream house on the other side of that, and that, that specific job that she's been working towards and wanting so bad. She's going to pray for a spouse. She'll wish, she'll pray for a child. Inevitably, though, her list will begin to change and shift and that she'll end up probably praying one day for an opportunity to get out of that toxic job atmosphere that she had once been so excited to get into. 
that she'll be praying to get out from under the debt that she had amassed and acquired through attending that school that was her target school, that she'll pray to get out of the lemon of a car that was far less than she had hoped that it would be and just creating more problems for her. She'll pray one day, probably like most of us, to get back into shape or to get a break from your kids or, or maybe just have a single good night's sleep. My point is that it's not just that our, light, our list in life ends up changing and adapting and evolving. It's interesting when you actually think about it that our list over time becomes self-defeating, that the very things that we feel like we have to have that we'd wish for in the end become things that we're praying that God would remove from our lives and give us a break from. It's not just that the list shifts, the list shifts, it becomes self-defeating, which leaves me thinking that maybe humanity's problem is not that we can't always get what we want. That's the song we actually sing to our kids often, you know, the Rolling Stones song? Uh, when they start asking for all these things and talking about what they want and throwing a fit about things, we, my wife and I just gently start lovingly, non-antagonistically singing, you can't always get what you want. You get what you need, though. Worse than maybe us not always getting what we want is that we actually sometimes do get we want and what we want, and then we realize that it really wasn't what we needed all along. That's our real problem as humans, is that even when we get what we want, we stop and go, this isn't necessarily even what I needed. Once we've received it, once we've experienced it, we begin to pray it out of our lives. I mean, if you've lived long enough, you start to realize that the real problem is that, truthfully, we don't really know. We don't know what we actually need. We don't actually know what's best for us. We don't even know what we should be wishing for or hoping for. Now, I'm comfortable looking at other people and saying that that's true about them, but I'm a little bit apprehensive to say that is true also about myself, but it is. I'm also apprehensive to admit that, that it's also true sometimes that it's such a deep-seated reality inside of me that it's even true and is seeped into the kind of God and Savior that I find myself wishing for. That even the way I view God is shaped by this twisted, distorted thing that exists inside of me. You see, our story we just read is about heaven's triumphant king, and if you know the story, you realize that he is unfortunately not the king that the world was looking for. He was heaven's answer, but wasn't our request. Now think about this with me. What, what kind of a savior, what kind of a king, what kind of Jesus do you wish for? You personally. I think our discouragement might be betraying us in revealing what kind of savior and king we're actually wishing for. Think about it this way. For many of us, when we're crushed, when we realized that Jesus is not just some online marketplace, he's not Amazon where we go to to get everything we've ever wanted or needed in life, when we find ourselves crushed in the moment of realization that he's not going to be that for us, when we find ourselves crushed that he's not some cosmic pill caddy that just promises relief for all that ails you. When you're discouraged and defeated because the things that ail you are still present in your lives. When we start to realize that he's not a cosmic district attorney who I get to send after every person and place that's ever wounded me. When I'm discouraged because I start to realize that he's not a political leader or an elected official who exists to represent me and my ideals, nor does he exist to try to legislate holiness and make the world right just through laws and pressure on top of people. When I'm crushed because I realize that Jesus is not just some cruise ship promising a carefree detachment from real life with no challenges following you as soon as the ship leaves the dock. 
that you just jump aboard with Jesus and say bye-bye to all your problems, when we realize that he's not going to be those things and we find ourselves so very discouraged because of it, we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, well, then what kind of Savior, what kind of Jesus, what kind of King are we really wishing for? You see, the story, I think, that is given to us that we just took a moment to read, I think actually contrasts the world's desire and the world's system of what kind of a leader and a kingdom the world is going to present, the world is going to produce. There's a contrast between the kind of heaven or king that heaven itself will provide for us, the kind of kingdom that heaven itself will build for us. There's a contrast between these two things. And unfortunately, for many of us, we find ourselves wishing and longing for things that look a little bit more like the world system that would fit under that empire, that regime, than the one that Jesus showed up to set up himself. Okay, so it's early in the talk to do this, but get nerdy with me for a couple of minutes. When we think about this story of the triumphant entry, probably a familiar story to many of you, if you've been in church for long or even just read the Gospels, because it does come up in all four of the Gospels. But historians, they make it clear to us that Jesus would not have been the only individual who, who would make a grand entrance like he does in this week, the week leading up to Passover. There's another individual that, that historians tell us about who would have made a very similar entrance into the city by the name of Pontius Pilate. He was the appointed governor, or in ancient inscriptions that they found on rocks and things in the region that he lived, Caesarea Maritime, he was the prefect, the governor, the ruling authority over all of Judea, all over this whole region that Rome had placed there to keep the peace and continue to suppress the Jewish nation. It had been almost a hundred years before this moment that the Romans had stepped in and taken away the authority of the previous king of Israel and now began to place these rulers to, to keep the, the nation, the people, under their thumb. And so the nation, for almost a hundred years, has waited for a deliverer to kick back on that oppression. Well, Pontius Pilate was not an individual who lived in the city of Jerusalem, though. He lived on the coast in a community called Caesarea Maritime, which, if you've been to Israel, is this incredible place that King Herod established and built. However, historians are really clear that Pontius Pilate would travel to Jerusalem at each of the seven feasts because the nation would regather, and when they did, there was all sorts of energy and excitement and anticipation because you gathered in those feasts not just to remember, but to anticipate a good future, not just to remember God's deliverance, but to remember in hope that he promises to still deliver. And so he would come with an iron fist and a heavy hand to be present there in Jerusalem at all of these feasts. And this is when these two different arrivals clash and contrast against one another. Because Pilate would have come with this heavy hand and military presence to keep the peace amidst all of those massive celebrations like it is about to take place at Passover. Historians tell us that he'd arrive with his, his military on horseback behind him, all of them brandishing weapons and bright shields that, that the sun would reflect off of, and all of them showing up with horns blasting and a big scene ensuing to make sure that everyone knew that their leader had arrived. Everyone knew that the power was there to squash them if they even tried anything. And it's Passover. This is the final week of Jesus' life. Passover, you might remember, took place in the spring. It was on the 14th day of the month of Nisan that the nation would remember what took place at Passover. 
And Jesus will find himself crucified on the very day where they would celebrate the Passover feast and where they would give sacrificial Passover lambs. This is the Passion Week, the beginning of Jesus' final week on the earth. And if you know much about Passover, it's a commemorative feast that's looking back to what happened when the nation was in captivity in Egypt and God sent a deliverer, Moses, to lead them out of captivity, but he would not be able to lead them out until Pharaoh released them and Pharaoh would not release them until the 10th plague came and the 10th plague came upon the land where the firstborn son of all of the nation would perish unless, 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 There was a sacrificial lamb that was perfect and spotless whose blood was shed and then the blood of that substitute and sacrifice was applied over the doorposts of the home. And if the angel of death came through that area, the angel would pass over, the judgment of God would pass over that house if they were covered by the blood of a spotless lamb, a substitute and sacrifice. It's a beautiful portrait of Jesus when you think about it. Remember, it's John the Baptist who, when he was going to baptize Jesus, John the baptizer said, Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Well, it's Passover, and the crowds, they're gathering full of anticipation. Jews migrating back towards the city of Jerusalem to observe and celebrate this feast. They'd gather with relatives and old friends to recongregate. It's one of their times where they'd all come together, and they came together to look back in commemoration of what their God faithfully did, but they came together also with hope and prayer as they looked ahead with anticipation to the fact that God would not allow them to be oppressed under another pharaoh, this time the Roman Empire, that God would promise to send another deliverer. But what they failed to remember was that there was no deliverance without there first being the shedding of blood of an innocent substitute and sacrifice. They were searching for their Moses who would lead them out from under bondage. And because They're on such a hot search for Moses, they'd miss out and overlook their sacrificial lamb in Jesus. When you picture the scene, remember that Jesus and his disciples, they're not the only people who just make their way into the city in in this moment in time in order to celebrate Passover. There's a Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. He gives us information about a Passover celebration during this time frame, saying that 255,000 lambs were slaughtered one year at Passover. If that was one lamb per household, then we do the math and easily you have a million people that have come back to the city to observe this celebration. The city was swollen and pregnant. It was overwhelmed with people as Jewish uh, individuals would travel from as far as the Galilee where Jesus had lived, where they're all traveling back to the city of Jerusalem. The city has grown and swelled to be overrun with these pilgrims who've traveled with anticipation of what their God will do. It's probably why we find Jesus and the other gospels coming and going for the remainder of this week from the city of Jerusalem and staying outside the city because they probably couldn't find a place inside the city to stay because it was so overrun with these pilgrims. And so here we find Jesus and his disciples. They're traveling from the city of Jericho, approaching Jerusalem from the east. Jericho is the lowest city still to this day, the lowest inhabited city in the, on planet Earth. And they'd come from that low point of like 400 feet below sea level to up to 3,000 feet above sea level on that journey up the hills to reach the top of the Mount of Olives to where they could finally look down and see the city of Jerusalem. As they would make their journey up there, they would sing from the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. If you've never read them, jot this down. Psalm 20 through Psalm 
or I'm sorry, Psalm 120 through 134. It wouldn't take you long. I did it in one sitting this week, which is not bragging. It's to show you it won't take you long. Psalm 120 through 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. And what you'll start to hear is joy and hope in those Psalms of a deliverer and of a new era for the nation. As they're singing those things and celebrating, remembering, remember commemorating, but also anticipating what God will do for them, they're traveling through the hot, dry hills in the Judean wilderness up to the top of the Mount of Olives where all of a sudden you're greeted with vegetation and all of a sudden you're greeted with the view of the temple in front of you. And no doubt in that moment when they reach the height of that mountain after days and days of traveling through the wilderness, they jump into action. They begin to cheer and dance and sing together because they made it back to Jerusalem the city of their God, the, the city of peace, Jerusalem, the, the city of peace. Now, there's two photos I want to show you that just give you a bit of a visual for this. And the first is of the Judean wilderness. If you come from out by Jericho and you begin to make your way towards Jerusalem, this is the landscape that you're greeted with. This is the Judean wilderness, a photo I snapped there years ago when I'd taken a group to Israel just standing there looking out. This is what you're traveling through together as a bunch of pilgrims making your way towards Jerusalem. So picture the scene. You have hundreds of thousands of Jews spread out throughout the land who are slowly migrating back there. And this is the route that they would have taken from Galilee to Jerusalem. And as they walked along that road, remember, Jesus and his disciples swing by Jericho. And when they do, they heal a blind man, Jesus does, publicly. Now there's even more of an uproar, more excitement and anticipation. They stop at Bethany and Bethpage, the hometown of Jesus' friends Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. You probably remember their story. It's there where Jesus will spend a night and be anointed with perfume. Lazarus, the one that Jesus had raised from the dead. All of these people that travel from Galilee with Jesus are people that have been healed by Jesus who are a part now of his whole entourage and they arrive with a big crowd with hundreds of thousands of other Jews following in their same footsteps and he publicly heals a guy and then they meet the guy that he raised from the dead. Uh, can you think of all? Can you feel the anticipation? Can you, can you feel the buzz kind of that was in the air as they all migrated back to the city? You reach the top of that mountain. If you hit the next one, Miss Ruth. And all of a sudden, the view that you're greeted with is something that, that the whole of the crowd would have erupted with excitement over. Because all of a sudden, from the barren wilderness to lush and green and a beautiful city, and where you see the Dome of the Rock, a bit faint there, I know, the temple was three times the size of that. In fact, Josephus talks about how this side of it uh, had white marble on it, and as the sun would come up over the eastern mountain of the Mount of Olives and reflect off that white marble and then gold that was laid on the front of it, that it would reflect back to where people would shield their eyes because it was such a beautiful sight and reflected so much of the light back their direction. They realized that they're landing somewhere, they're arriving somewhere that's so very significant, so very special. They're celebrating the Passover, though. Think about this. They're celebrating Passover while being oppressed. This would be like us celebrating 4th of July while being occupied by North Korea. This is a weird thing for them to celebrate because Passover is all about deliverance, right? But they're waiting for a deliverer. Years ago, I had a friend from the UK who spent 4th of July here, and I remember him afterwards saying, this is so weird. You Americans are so weird that you like celebrate your independence. And he's from the UK, so he had to throw some jabs in of like, well, did you used to celebrate dependence for all those years before? 
your independence and had all of his goofy jokes. But then he said, you know, it is a weird thing, though, that it's like beer and blowing stuff up are the two ways you celebrate. It feels like a weird combo. And I agree with him. It is kind of weird. But can you imagine if we were celebrating Fourth of July, the all-American holiday, our independence, while at the same time being oppressed by another group? There'd be so much angst. There'd be so much frustration, like, like serious tension that would exist. So what we're experiencing is hundreds of thousands of emotionally charged Jews arriving at the city full of that kind of angst and yet that kind of anticipation that they would have a deliverer, and here comes Jesus, the teacher and miracle worker, surrounded by those disciples with those who had been healed by him. Isaiah the prophet had said in Isaiah 35, he had prophesied saying, say to those with faithful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He shall come to save you. And when he comes, he said, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And there is blind Bartimaeus in their company. And there is Lazarus there with him. John's gospel says that Lazarus was present with Jesus as he entered and that many of the Jews even began to believe because of the testimony of Lazarus who was dead and made alive by Jesus. They're seeing everything unfold that the prophets had foretold of. And then quite possibly the biggest shift in Jesus' life and ministry takes place in this moment where in the past Jesus had kept his identity a secret. You remember it's as early back as Mark chapter 1 where where he heals a leper and then tells the guy, don't tell anyone. It's then later in Mark chapter 5 where he's addressing these demons and driving them out of this boy and they know his identity and he tells them that they are not to tell anyone and he tells them be muzzled and don't speak. It's when he's with his disciples in chapter 9 and they say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does he tell them? He says, and keep this under your hat for now. For my time has not yet come. Rather than keeping things under wraps, Jesus now for the very first time is purposefully publicly revealing himself as Messiah and as a king. And people are going crazy. Remember, there's a contrast here, though. That same week that Jesus comes down with all of the crowds and all of the anticipation, all of the excitement, all of the cheering, on the other side of the city arrived one named Pontius Pilate who would have entered the city surrounded by multitudes and mass hysteria. Pilate came from the west, historians tell us, from Caesarea Maritime on the coast. Jesus comes from the east. Pilate would enter riding a white stallion, a war horse. Jesus would enter on a donkey. If you know ancient cultures, not just the Roman cultures, but ancient cultures, a leader, a king, an emperor, if they're coming in to flex their power, or if they're coming in with aggression and might, or in a statement or stance of war, they'd come in on a war horse. But if you came in on a donkey, there's a statement that I've arrived in peace. There's a contrast here between Pilate who comes with the sword flexing his power and intimidation and Jesus who comes armed with nothing. Pilate who comes surrounded by an army, Jesus surrounded by misfits, by beggars and blind people, by people who were outcasts and marginalized, by people that Jesus had brought near to himself whose whole identities and life had been changed by him. 
It's Pilate who came to impress and to oppress. It's Jesus who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Some scholars and historians, they suggest that it's very possible that these two entrances actually took place on the same day, which would explain why Jesus and his disciples were not rounded up by the Roman military guards when they entered the city pronouncing Jesus as king. Because if the guards would have seen it, if if the Roman legions would have known it, they would have arrested him and his disciples for treason on the spot. It's crazy to begin to picture what is playing out in Jerusalem. And the two different entrances into the city create this crazy contrast, don't they? Of two very contrasting kingdoms that cannot coexist. These two different ideologies, these two different kingdoms cannot be mingled or married together. The kingdom and system of the world and the kingdom of Jesus. They are mutually exclusive. It is one or the other. We cannot mix the two together. It is either rebellion or obedience. It is either pride or humility. It's either entitlement or mercy. It's either materialism or generosity. It's either intimidation or gentleness. It's either power or meekness. It's a horse or a donkey. It's a sword or a cross. This this is not, this is not, please hear me, this is not what it takes to make it in Jesus' kingdom. No, this is how we are called to live as citizens who've placed, whose place has been purchased and secured inside of his kingdom by the king himself who'd suffer and die in our place. These two kingdoms that are contrasted at this pinnacle moment in the life of Jesus, who would you identify? The crazy thing is, guys, we could stand that day shoulder to shoulder inside the crowd along those streets and cheer with the people so happy to see Jesus, only to find ourselves with them changing our tune from Hosanna, which means save now. Save now. To echoing their cries just days later when they will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And that change in tune takes place when we realize that he's not really the Jesus we signed up to follow. That he's not the Jesus or king that we wished for. That he's not the king that we've created. And if we're honest, we aren't always excited about who Jesus really is and what he chooses to do and not do. But he doesn't answer to me. I bow a knee to him. The sad reality, not just back in that day that we call Palm Sunday, but the sad reality even in our own lives personally is that sometimes we'd rather have a Messiah of our own making the one, than the one who actually arrived. We'd rather have a Messiah who'd yield to my will and my wishes rather than a Savior and King who, who requires that I yield to his will and to his plan. There's a contrast that's being staged for us here that that early audiences of Jesus and of Scripture would have known instantly and not missed a contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the world system, the way things work, and the kingdom of Jesus, the way that things work in the kingdom of God. Real quick, I want to view this story from four different perspectives. Real quick. The first being viewing the story through the present through, through the lens of the first century audience that was making their pilgrimage back into Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Those who were oppressed that we're talking about, who were there on that day under Roman rule, who were hopeful and anticipating a deliverer who would come, a new king who would reign and replace them. 
This was not a lifeless crowd that all of a sudden got lively out of nowhere. That's not how this played out. Remember, they're traveling through that whole region with anticipation and expectation. Bartimaeus and Lazarus and so many others whose names we don't know, who Jesus had miraculously worked in their life. All of those testimonies of Jesus' love and compassion and power, his authority, are all of a sudden building a groundswell of expectation, a groundswell of excitement. And as they're remembering the words of the prophets of what Messiah would do, the king who would come to deliver them, they can't help but be overcome When all of a sudden Jesus sits on a donkey, it just explodes. The place, the lid goes off the top of it because they knew what it meant. See, it's not the first time that this will play out where God's people saw a king arrive on a donkey. In fact, when Solomon took over for his father, King David, to reign rightfully in his place, Solomon chose rather than to ride into the city for his coronation on the back of a horse, he would arrive in humility with an expression of how approachable, not that he'd be heavy-handed, but that he, like his father, would love his people with humility and gentleness, he would arrive on the back of a donkey. He would not be an oppressive, powerful ruler who, who would force them into submission. And Jesus takes on that imagery for himself, that same humble imagery. And what he portrays here is a living parable. He's fulfilling prophetic imagery that the prophets give to us from Zechariah chapter 9. I'll read it to you. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and virtuous, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Do you understand? He's saying everything that's needed for a war All of it will be done away with because he will come to proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The imagery, the allegory, the prophetic was not lost on that first century audience that was there to see this moment happen. They didn't overlook it. They recognized what Jesus was saying and who Jesus was clearly claiming to be in fulfillment of prophecy. And they went wild and began to shout and say, well, then save us now. Hosanna, Hosanna. Quoting Psalm 118 about God sending a deliverer. Save now, save now, our God, save now. It's not just the lens of the present, but think through the lens of the past even. These were people who were very familiar with the Old Testament prophets, and they no doubt understood the imagery of the moment. And there was Jesus, their promised deliverer and king. And the the crowds that gathered and lined the streets, they begin to lay out palm branches and to take their own cloaks off and to lay them on the ground. And Jesus in that moment receives a king's welcome into the city. He'd been just a teacher and a healer. He had been someone that probably even felt like a local hero because he had stood in opposition to the religious system and rule the authority of the religious system that was so suppressive on people. And Jesus had opposed them publicly. But now things are changing. For him to enter the city the way that he did on a donkey was a clear identity statement to everyone that gathered, and they believed a very clear purpose statement as well, that Jesus is here to save us. He's going to save us from our oppressors. He's going to be established as our king. He's going to establish everlasting peace. We're not going to deal with this anymore ever again. They hoped for a king who'd come as fierce as a lion attacking the Romans. 
But what entered Jerusalem that day was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb. He would strip our greater enemy of his crown of sin, sickness, suffering, and death through his sacrifice. The moment is reminiscent of an ancient king in Israel who God raised up to overthrow the worst oppressors that the nation had had, the worst leaders, their own king and queen, Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. And he raises up, God does, this guy by the name of Jehu, where the prophet Elisha sends one of his young apprentices to go to Jehu and anoint him as king. And Jehu's friends begin to ask, what in the world just happened when the crazy prophet just ran in and back out? And Jehu told them, well, in 2 Kings chapter 9, he says, here's what he told me. He says, this is what the Lord says, I've anointed you as the king of Israel. And then it says, verse 13, 2 Kings 9, that they quickly took their cloaks off and spread them under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. You see, for the people in Jesus' story during this triumphant entry into the city, to take off their garments and lay them down was making a statement that they agreed that this is God's choice of our next leader. They're saying this is our new king to overthrow the wicked, wicked leadership that exists over us in this season. It's a statement that, God, we believe that this is what you're doing and we're on board with you. Although in that ancient story of Jehu, Jesus and Jehu could not be more different. Jesus would enter on a donkey. Jehu's the guy, maybe if you know your Bible, you remember in the Old Testament, it says that Jehu drove his chariot furiously. He literally was recognized from afar by how crazy he drove his chariot. Like, that's hysterical. The contrast, though, is not just in their driving or mode of transportation. The contrast is that Jehu went on a rampage, shedding blood to overthrow the previous regime. And Jesus, instead, would end this moment anticlimactically. Did you notice that in verse 11? Where he comes into Jerusalem, the crowd is going nuts all around him, saying and chanting, save now, save now. He then walks into the temple, the climactic moment. Do we crown him as king? What's going to happen? Jesus looks around and turns into parts. Massive anticlimax in that moment. He quietly leaves, not raising a sword, not being placed with a crown. Jesus would, instead of doing what Jehu did, go out on a rampage and shed blood to overthrow a different leader. Jesus, instead, would allow his own blood to be shed to defeat that other leader and regime. You see, the spoiler alert is that if you fast forward from Sunday to the end of the week, the very same people who are here shouting Hosanna will be shouting crucify because Jesus doesn't live up to their anticipation even that first day they chose to follow him. Because Jesus' deliverance was not going to be what they had hoped it would be. Because Jesus walked into the temple, observed all these things, and then left quietly without creating a commotion to overthrow the regime that existed there. View the story through a present lens, through a past lens of what prophets had foretold, but then view the story in light of the future. Think about the future very quickly. Jesus gave us his mission statement for his first advent where he says in Mark 10, 45, remember this is the theme verse really of the whole book, where he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the, the reason for his mission statement for his first arrival, his first advent. But if you know your Bible, that you know that it describes the dual nature and purpose of the promised Messiah and prophecy. 
that he's described as both a lion and as a lamb, that he's described as a suffering servant and yet also a conquering king and final judge. It's something that left many so very confused as they looked at a juxtaposition of a conquering king with judgment and power and yet a suffering servant who would have his rip beat out and his back beaten and, and ripped apart and his hands and his feet pierced and would die as a substitute. But we know that those things are addressing two separate arrivals of Jesus. And this first arrival is Jesus the Lamb who came on Passover week. But a second coming as we view this lens through the future is looking ahead to the lion of the tribe of Judah who arrives to bring justice and judgment and make the world right again. The story is meant to remind our hearts that this is not the only time Jesus will enter into Jerusalem. In fact, it tells you in your Bible that when he comes again, that he arrives on a white horse. That he arrives with a sword in his mouth even. And when he steps foot on the Mount of Olives, creation itself feels his presence and there's an upheaval with creation. Remember he said in this moment when the, I think it's in Luke's gospel, when the religious leaders come, they're like, hey, you need to shut your disciples up with all this Hosanna business. And he said, if they do not praise me, even creation itself will respond. He said, even the rocks will cry out. I once heard someone say, if they didn't praise him, even the stoners would believe. And I was like, ooh. I mean, sure, but no. It's interesting, quantum physics, this is, I'm sorry. Quantum physics actually is catching up to this idea and seeing that a rock actually can record and can play back sound. That that's the next level new frontier of nerdy science, is that they're realizing that sound actually lands somewhere and can be played from even an inanimate object. Kind of like a record is the idea, which is a wild thought. But Jesus said creation itself will burst at the seams and begin to respond if these people don't cry out. Well, at the end of the book, creation itself does. At the end of the book, the lion arrives, not just the lamb. It's amazing that in John, his recount of what he experiences when he in the book of Revelation is there in the presence of God in heaven. Remember, he's crying out saying, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll, the title deed to the earth? Is there anyone who can do it? And when no were, no one, none were found worthy, he begins to be brokenhearted and to weep. And then someone comes and says, there's one who's worthy, the lion. And when he looked for the lion in the, in the place that he was told, this is where you'll find him, what he found was instead a lamb who had been slain. He was a lion all along, but had become like a lamb, so vulnerable. Track with me. If Jesus, his first coming, had been the lion, all of us would be crushed in judgment. But he instead, with meekness, meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. With power under control that he set aside, he arrived humbly as a lamb who would be slain. It's beautiful imagery. We're meant to look at this story and light of the future, thinking of what Jesus will do in our future. He will have his great day. But then this is the last thing, and you can close your Bible. Is what if we view the story in light of today? What's some simple application for us today? We've learned some things. Maybe we're thinking through the imagery of the moment. But what does the story really say to me today? Well, the first thing I think it says to you, just by way of simple application, is don't give up and bail out on Jesus just because your expectations go unmet, just because the one you've wished for and created in your own mind has proven not to be what you had longed for him to be. Because when you think about it in this story, Jesus did not fall short of their expectations. Jesus superseded their expectations. Think about that. He suffered 
and died to secure an eternal place inside his kingdom. They thought he had disappointed and fallen short of the expectation to just throw, overthrow one regime from over them. But what Jesus did was make a way for them to enter into an eternal kingdom. He superseded their expectations. Listen, please. They needed, however, to allow him to rewrite their expectations of what he would do and how he would accomplish it. Will you let him do the same for you? To rewrite your expectations? Or because he doesn't meet your expectations, are you going to turn around and walk away like they did? Because we, like they, can, we can stand beside the crowd along those streets so happy to see Jesus only finding ourselves to change our tune with them. From Hosanna, save now. We trust that you're the one, Jesus, worthy of our trust to crucify, crucify. And that change in tune takes place when we realize he's not the Jesus that we initially maybe signed up to follow because he's not the king that we wished for that we created in our own minds. But he's Jesus, the savior that creation needs. He's the savior and king that creation can trust because look at a cross. Your life might be broken and hard and I don't have answers for why it's that way, but I can tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not that God doesn't care. He cared so deeply that he would enter not as a lion, but as a lamb to suffer and die as a sacrifice for all of mankind on a cross. Don't give up and bail out on Jesus just because your expectations go unmet. What's the application, the simple thoughts? The, the second thing is just remember, remember today Jesus' foreknowledge and ability to work all things together for good. Because in this story, Jesus has this incredible foreknowledge of what will happen with the disciples while they're securing this donkey. And this is not because Jesus has previously set it up with some donkey owner in the city and worked out a deal and brokered an exchange for money all of a sudden or, or sometime long before this and said, one day it's going to happen and I need you just to give the donkey away. No, Jesus knew that if the guys showed up and went and grabbed the donkey, if they just told the person the Lord has need of it, that the person would release it. It wasn't because Jesus had connived and orchestrated all these things. The reason Mark is giving these details is to point out that Jesus was sovereign and that he was not in this chaotic, tragic mess of a moment that, that that's how it looks from the outside that's about to take place with Jesus where he will be betrayed, where he then will be handed over to his enemies, where he will be flogged and beaten unjustly and ultimately that he would be murdered. It's giving you the insight that Jesus is still sovereign, and that this was not a chaotic, tragic mess that's about to ensue and play out. In fact, Jesus would say it this way in John's Gospel, chapter 10. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Remember Jesus' foreknowledge, his ability to work all things together for good. Mark's taking the time to point this out, I think, intentionally, to highlight and point out that Jesus wanted his followers to be clear right from the moment when they enter Jerusalem that he is still very, very much in control. Why does that matter? Remember, Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels to be written. It's believed it was written and circulated in the 60s AD when massive persecution of early followers of Jesus is breaking out, where they're being arrested and beaten, where they're being thrown to wild animals, where they're sewing animal skins into their own skin and throwing them to wild animals to be ripped apart, 
where Caesar Nero is dipping them in tar and igniting them as human candles that he would impale on large posts and having him light up his palace with these human candles. What's happening to followers of Jesus seems tragic and chaotic and out of control, even out of God's control. But Mark slows them down to remind them that although things looked chaotic and beyond just scary, people dying for their faith, Mark wanted them to remember that Jesus was more than just aware, he was sovereign. And he wasn't necessarily causing these things, but he was capable of using what was playing out even in their lives, just like it was playing out in his life. Which is a really, really great reminder, I'm sure, for them, but was a really great reminder for me this week. That there's lots of things that feel, for me, chaotic and out of control, and I have to pause, and maybe you do too today, to remember that Jesus is still in control and reigning as a king over creation. A remember Jesus' foreknowledge and ability to work things together for good. It's, it's a theological statement Jesus is making by saying, I know how things are going to play out here. That is meant to comfort us. The other thing that's simple application is just for you to remember from this story that God's very faithful. His promises always come to pass. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. Daniel, the prophet, Daniel chapter 9, had talked about this very day when Jesus would enter the city. Do your research on how that aligned on a calendar to mark this moment in time where Jesus would enter the city. Zechariah 9 said he'd come on a donkey and he would come bringing everlasting peace. If he's fulfilled all these things up until this point, then we believe him for our future where he does come back as the lion to bring justice and restoration in all of creation. God's faithful, remember that. But the other thing maybe to remember from the story is that he also deeply cares for you. Because in Luke's gospel, Luke, Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Luke slows us down and says, and Jesus in this moment as he's looking at the city, he begins to weep. And he says, you don't know what it's going to cost. The next story, he's angry with these self-righteous religious elites with, he's angry with their broken, self-righteous system that he's, they're putting over people. But in this story, he's angry with no one. In this story, he's compassionate and brokenhearted for those who wandered and hurt, who were lost and confused and without hope. He said this, he says, Do you not know the things that make for your peace? He saw what they were missing, and he saw where it was leading, and it broke his heart to where he physically is overcome with emotion and tears. The story just reminds me then that maybe he's not mad at me. It tells me he hasn't given up on me. But he very may today well be weeping with or for me. This is the kind of God and king I have is one who sees and who cares and who's deeply moved by these things. The last little line of application is that in the story, in the end, the story, it, it leaves that clear line in the sand of which king and kingdom do you choose to be a part of? Because these two kingdoms can't coexist. They can't be married together. They're mutually exclusive from one another. It is either rebellion or obedience. It's pride or humility. It's entitlement or mercy, materialism or generosity. It's intimidation or gentleness. It's power or meekness. It's a horse or a donkey. It's a sword or a cross. Remember Jesus said, I must suffer. Why must he suffer? 
Jesus' death was not just a payment, it was a cosmic demonstration. That's what Romans chapter 5 tells you, that it demonstrated something. But what did it demonstrate? It demonstrated at least two things. The first is that it demonstrated that this sinful, fallen world system is so broken and corrupt. Think about just how corrupt and broken it is. The only perfect human being to ever walk the earth was put to death through its justice system. Not in a back alley somewhere. The cross took us to, to this bleak moment in time that shows with clarity just how jacked up our world is, just how marred by sin God's good creation has become. And condemning Jesus on that day, the world was condemning itself. The world was demonstrating just how backward and broken it was. The world was more than just exposed on that day, though. The world was defeated. Jesus did not win, though, through violence. He didn't fight fire with fire. He conquered it with love. You see, that's the other thing it demonstrated. It demonstrated that Jesus' love was incomparable. It demonstrated the amazing, incomparable nature of the love of God for creation. That God didn't just show us that the world was broken, but he also simultaneously in that moment would show us just how good and loving and compassionate and gracious Jesus is in contrast to the world. My friends, we're here every week for the same message, aren't we? That our world is broken and Jesus is good. I'm not here ever to remind you of some system of redemption. I'm here to point you towards a person, Jesus, our Redeemer, who is our hope. Not some system we follow or yield to or adhere to. No, we look to Jesus alone, who is so different from any other thing or person we can look. We look to Jesus because he's worth looking at. And he's worth trusting. And so Jesus, for us, we say then, Hosanna. We say, Jesus, save now. Jesus, we say that. As we look at our world, save now. Jesus, as we look at our family, save now. As we look at brokenness, we say save now. Save us from Satan and sin. Save us, Hosanna. Jesus, save us from the broken system that we're subjected to, a broken world that just compounds brokenness. Jesus, Hosanna, save now. But Jesus, with honesty and humility, we look in a mirror and we say, Jesus, save us from ourselves. Save now, Jesus. We do not just have an enemy in a spiritual realm. We do not just have an enemy that wages war against us in our world. We have an enemy that resides inside of us. Jesus, we need saving from ourselves. Jesus, we want to be more like you. Jesus, we need you to rescue us, not just to redeem and restore creation and society, the system, but us as people. Hosanna, we say, Jesus, our King, save now. Jesus, today we stand corrected. Jesus, today we are willing to bend a knee and say, Jesus, we do not want the king that we've created through our dreams and wishes and, and expectations. Jesus, we will take you because you have accepted us. And Jesus, that's what we needed, to be loved and accepted. And so Jesus, our king, we worship you. Hosanna, we say.
Save us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.